Welcome to Unwinding, a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we sit down with KU researchers in a favorite or familiar setting to chat about what they're working on, why they're passionate about it, why it matters, and what makes them tick as humans. Wherever the location, the conversation explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries. Unwinding is a collaboration between the Commons at the University of Kansas and KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. It's hosted by Emily Ryan, the Director of the Commons, and produced by Mark Sheaves, Assistant Director of Communications for the College, who sometimes asks questions. Hannah, hello. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm Hannah Britton. I'm in two departments. I'm in Political Science and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. I specialize in a range of topics, gender and African politics, gender and politics, human trafficking, gender-based violence, and I really love teaching. That's awesome. That's also just cool to hear as part of your introduction, frankly. So we're here in your office chatting with you and, you know, seeing sort of all the books and things like that. It just makes me think, where do you typically do your research, given that you have all of these different areas that you focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question because I think I do my research everywhere. I'll try to make sense of that answer. I do a lot of my primary research in Africa and South Africa and Namibia, and I have been for the last 20 plus years. So I do a lot of my, what we'd call field work in that area. That said, I also have moved in the last five years to doing work in the Midwest, looking at human trafficking, and really looking at ways to prevent human trafficking and gender-based violence as well. But I also find some of the best research is happening with my students in my classes. So I've really expanded my idea of research to include that class time. I've been working on creating in my classes uh, something akin to what they do in the natural sciences, which is a live lab. So I've been working to provide training on research methods for my students by actually bringing them into my research. And normally that wouldn't be possible because I go to Africa and that's a really expensive plane ticket and it's not easy work, right? Mm -hmm. So being able to bring some of that research training home in the Midwest has been really fun. And it's also been really exciting to see how the students really are teaching me so much Mm -hmm. about not only the content of our topics, but also better ways to do research. Do you have an example of that? An example of a student bringing you a new idea or a new approach? Yeah, I have a lot of them. I mean, (laughs) the live lab has been fun in that particular way. I have a student who just graduated who really was the heart and soul of the anti-trafficking research here. She received a National Science Foundation fellowship to do work in rural areas to learn more about how trafficking presents itself and also how service providers were addressing it. And she was also pushed us to think about looking for warning signs in unexpected places. So talking to people that you normally wouldn't think about being service providers, like English language uh, instructors, Mm. working with LGBTQ community resources. So she was thinking about trafficking in new and different ways. And it's been really invaluable for our research. I've had another couple of students who decided they wanted to look at religion in the trafficking movement, but look at the religious left instead of the religious right, which has been covered a lot in the trafficking research. So that was fun and new. And some other students who really wanted to look at the climate for migrants in the Midwest. So what they found, which was really, really interesting, is even though there is 
some larger political you know, policies, some would say rhetoric around sort of anti-immigration nationally, regionally. When they actually talk to service providers or organizers in local communities, they really put it in the context of, you know, this is a Midwestern value, right, to welcome mm-hmm. and take care of people. Mm-hmm. So it was a nice way to sort of shift everything on its head to say when there are these moments where people may or may not be welcome at, at the borders, people in the Midwest are saying, you know what, we can take care of each other in new and important ways. So I've learned so much from my students and their research. Yeah. I could keep going. That's cool. (laughs) Well, so just thinking about the structure of that, I mean, if you're thinking about the way that a typical classroom looks, how does, how does the lab, how is it different? What's the structure that's different for it? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, trying to do that also with my undergraduate courses, but we'll stick with the trafficking research for now. The classroom itself is still the classroom. I mean, this is this is where we come together. I do it in the course of teaching a range of qualitative methods. I found early on reading about qualitative methods and not actually practicing them, the students didn't learn things. And I have students who would come into my office and say, oh, I just got back from a year abroad. I have all this data. What should I do with it? Mm. It's like, you should have thought about that before you go, before you went, right? Um, so... We spend time in the class understanding how research methods work, and then we send them out. So I bring them onto the project, and then we come up with, as a class, something to focus on for that semester. So I have students this semester who are really interested, again, on working with religious leaders who work in with congregations, foreign-born con- congregations and non-English services, just to see you know, what they're encountering in terms of vulnerabilities. So then they take, you know, our research design, implement it, and bring it back into the classroom, and we examine what they've found. After the class is over, students can decide if they want to use that in a publication. We take that forward. I have co-authored with students, or they do it independently. We've had students do that. Or they turn it into conference presentations, or they turn it into job talks. So we still have the organic classroom experience, but we experiment with things. We wrestle with things. It gets mm. messy. So the outputs um, are yeah. taking different forms. Is yeah. that undergraduate or graduate? That's graduate. The undergraduate, I've been trying to do more mini research projects as well, and I've been collaborating with KU Libraries for a long time on sort of revamping my Women in Politics course. Mm. This is an interesting fun fact. We actually, in the Department of Political Science, are teaching three gender and politics courses, one on gender and elections, taught by Christina Bejarano, uh, my course on women in politics, and another course on gender and Latin American politics. Wow. Two of them maxed out with waiting lists. The other one has had more students than ever. So I think it's a really interesting moment. Yeah. Students want to know what's happening, and mm-hmm. they want to get involved, and they're interested in the intersection of gender and politics. Yeah. So that's been fun. So at the undergrad level, I've worked with KU Libraries and Amalia Gulak-Monroe to revamp some of my research projects. So we actually have them do hands-on many research projects, looking at gender campaigns, analyzing campaign ads, looking at gender and campaign financing, looking at educational backgrounds of politicians, the pipeline for gender, the intersection intersection of gender and race, and preparation for elections. So it's been really fun. And we had presentations on Tuesday, and they taught me things there as well. Things I just didn't know, because I'm not an Americanist. Mm -hmm. That's not my focus. So for them to get in and really see things about campaign finance, it's making them better citizens, for sure. 
but it's also great to see them realize, you know, these articles that we read and they breeze through and then let's try to implement one fifth of what you read. It's really fun to see them get dirty and messy with that. That's got to feel good for them, too, to feel like they're teaching you something, you know, and seeing the way that the educational process happens in two different directions. Oh, yeah. I mean, and they're so good. I Mm -hmm. mean, the students are so good. Mm -hmm. They're engaged. They're thoughtful. They're critical. They're smart. You know, and I just, I can't ask for better students than we have here. They're really, really engaged. They're really thoughtful. They really care about the future. Mm -hmm. And I really want them all to run for office. (laughs) (laughs) I tell them that all the time. I mean, they're really good students. Earlier, you mentioned one of your graduate students who had really helped by taking the lead yeah. a lot with the anti-human trafficking research. Yeah. Would you talk, first of all, just to introduce the center, Yeah, ASHD is the yeah. acronym, but it's the yeah. Anti-Slavery and Human Trafficking Initiative? Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's housed within the Center for the Study of Injustice. Yes. Is that right? Okay, and then that's housed within <laughs> IPSR, which is the Institute for Policy and Social Research. Yes. So could you sort of walk us through that, that sort of pyramid that of how that all works? Yeah, so I mean, I think the most important thing is the mothership, right? The, okay. the IPSR, <laughs> which has been really the lifeblood and an intellectual home for social sciences and humanists as well for the university for a long time. It's been a really important center for me, for my intellectual development, and also for supporting collaborations, right? So we pull in people from the School of Law. We pull in people from KU Med. We pull in people from the School of Education. And it's a really good space for exchange and ideas and just engage scholars who want to ask questions that have meaning, Mm. right? That, you know, that and I guess it's what we're calling now engaged scholarship, right? That they want to learn things that that can be helpful for policymakers, that can be helpful for communities. So that's been really, really important. Within IPSR, there are several centers that also work on a range of things. So we have a Center for Migration Research, we have a Center for Surveillance, we have a Center for all kinds of things. So it's a place for people to grow their interest in some particular ways. So my center houses, I, I think of it more as a, as a place to, again, bring people together, maybe at the initial stage of getting them involved in IPSR. So we work on issues. We t- thought about calling it the Center for Justice, but then we got worried that that would sound like it was just a law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And we do work with law enforcement, right? But it's not just on the law enforcement side. So we were interested in how to address inequalities, how to bring communities together to answer difficult questions. So the Ashley Project's underneath that. That is also a project that was birthed by a graduate student. And it's in all the way back. Laura Dean was a member of our Department of Political Science, and she was very focused on human trafficking and really got a lot of interest on campus around human trafficking. And and we had a conference in 2013 to bring people together to talk about the issue because we really weren't sure what had been done, what hadn't been done. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I think there wasn't a lot of really good research on human trafficking. And I hate to say it, but there's still not a lot of really good research on human trafficking. So we decided to have a conference to bring together people to talk about what we know and what we don't know. Mm-hmm. We expected 20 people and 200 showed up. So wow. it was a little <laughs> bigger than we thought. Yeah. But it was nice because it was one of those moments where practitioners, survivors, survivor leaders, law enforcement, religious people all came together and had a conversation. After that, the focus that we could take forward really was the research side of things. So we got interested in moving things upstream. So thinking about prevention, thinking about why do some populations who are vulnerable get exploited and others don't? Like, what are some interruption points in this system to 
prevent people from being exploited. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Daly, who is here at KU as well, I hope you get to talk to her, really comes at things from a public health standpoint, and she really encourages us to think about it. And I thought initially in one of those conversations you have, right, she said, well, this is really a public health issue. I said, we're really not focused on things like STDs. I, I didn't really even understand what she meant by a public health approach. And then she walked me through it mm-hmm. and said, no, this is about understanding social determinants of health. This is about understanding root causes of vulnerability. This is about stopping exploitation. And so once we shifted that framework, it really gave us a new way of approaching this issue. So that's really where we've centered our work mm-hmm. because we would like to be in a place where our research not only helps prevent trafficking from happening, which is a horrific crime, but all kinds of exploitation, right? The things that we're finding, you talk to anyone who deals with child abuse, who deals with you know problems with the foster care system, who deals with problems related to hunger and housing, all of those factors we found to be related to trafficking. Some people might end up in a situation where they're trafficked, but regardless, we don't need to have people who are homeless in our community. We don't need to have people who are food insecure in our community. So once we made that shift, it gave us a lot of energy to engage the scholarship that's there. Because there are good people who are working on the prosecution side of things. I'm not a criminal justice person, so I can't quite do that. And we're going to have another conference coming up in the spring to sort of move to the next step. So thinking about six years later, what have we learned and where can we take it next? And we've decided we'd like to really position KU to be a training center for people who are doing work with vulnerable populations. So much like we have intensive methods courses over the summer for different types of methods, we could one day become a center where we bring together some of the lead researchers who work with trafficking, who work with gender-based violence, who work with at-risk populations to think about things like ethical research, to think about things like, you know, developing trauma-informed research protocols, thinking about researcher and survivor safety, those types of things. So some of the things that we talk about in our methods classes but don't really focus on, I think that's where we could bring together the real strength we have in research design and also you know, the fact that we have this many people who are work- working on things like migration and exploitation. And that in fact, I have so many questions. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, so. great. I mean, I was just wondering about the fact that you kind of arrived at this idea of seeking how to prevent human trafficking before it happens, right? Like mm-hmm. trying to understand how it happens and, and finding the ways in which you can address it from that point on. Mm-hmm. A lot of what you talked about, social determinants, mm-hmm. I guess, like education, poverty, things like that. Does this kind of point you towards a theory that academic research needs to be collaborative, needs to have people from all over campus involved in order to like really create this kind of recommendations? Yes, I mean, I'm not going to say all research, sure. um, but I know that personally for me, my research has gotten better and more interesting and more relevant the more people I engage. I was trained in graduate school in, in much a similar environment at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. It was okay. very interdisciplinary. You know, people's offices were based on project, not on department, mm-hmm. right? So it was a really interesting, you know, let's embrace asking difficult questions and talking to each other about how to do that. So for me, it's it, it's certainly how I was trained. And I'm also in an interdisciplinary department, so I think that's really helpful. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, had I not had these conversations with people like Dorothy Daly and students like Corinne Schwartz and Laura Dean, like I, I wouldn't have been able to push my work in these important ways. So now we have people at the medical school like Megha Ramaswamy, who I consult on everything. Mm-hmm. She does work in public health in ways that I am just in awe of. So I think that's really, really important. We've collaborated with people in the law school to think about how to do 
all kinds of things differently. One of our first key partners were the, was the Medical Legal Partnership Clinic at KU, and Katie Cronin was the lead of that at the time. And she was one of our central partners because she was seeing trafficking cases in the Medical Legal Partnership, right? So yeah. thinking, you know, if we have someone working at the ER and someone working at the medical school and at the law school, this is the team at KU Med designed a identification protocol for trafficking mm-hmm. to use in the ER. I mean, that's where things really get very useful, mm-hmm. I think, in those particular ways. But all of my research now, I mean, I there's so much of what we do that's in isolation, which needs to be. Like, I really do need time to sit and write and think. So that part has to be pretty isolated. But at the same time, I've been collaborating like crazy with my students and that's a model that I got from really from the chair of political science on Heider Markel I, I went to him years ago and said how are you co-publishing with all these students he said I just do you know and this is this is a priority mm-hmm. and once I started doing that the research got better I hoped that their careers got better at the very least they now know how to submit an art write an article submit sure. an article get it rejected and send it back out so at least that's happening yeah. I try to involve them in the grant process so I think I think better collaboratively. And it's just not something I've been able to do as much taking students with me. But I would say even my research in Africa is very collaborative. I work with partners. You know, I partnered with the same institute for 20 years in Africa. So, you know, that's, I worked with them and partnered with them and they were integral in everything that I did. So while the writing itself can be fairly isolating, I think it's nice to be part of a team. I think I'm definitely better because of it. I think we all probably are. And these are resource constrained environments right now. I mean, we don't have the luxury of, of, you know, people are pulling resources left and right to try to pull something together. So yeah, that's fun to see. Yeah. We are. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I often, the initial way that you started to answer that question, I often face people who are, you know, when I say the word interdisciplinary or like, yeah. don't dilute what I'm doing into, you know, oh, and yeah. there's yeah. that sort of idea. And then I, I need to remind myself that part of my language should be, there's only interdisciplinary because there are disciplines, right? right. So we're building on that. And as you're right. saying, being able to rely on everybody's expertise across their own areas. And so it's not that I'm trying to remove your expertise, but right. rather build on that and bring it all together in conversation, which I, is what you're saying. So. Yeah, no, and I think that's the perfect way to say it because I do think I still also get the same sort of reaction. And But if you think about it, so places like Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, we're actually quite disciplinary in our conversations and in our teaching. And we all bring our particular trainings into those conversations. It makes us better, mm-hmm. I think, because of that. And we learn to talk across those boundaries, right? You know, I know I reach my limits sometimes when I'm talking to perhaps some natural scientist and I don't understand the research, but I'm to the place now where I say, all right, I'm going to ask you stupid questions and then you're going to explain what you really do to me. <laughs> and it's fun because then I can learn things, right? You know, yeah. I think it's... Yeah, I feel like I didn't do that much most of the time. Well, like yeah, I'm yeah. asking what is perceived to be a stupid question, but I'm just trying to like set base understanding before I yeah, assume things. It really helps. And even in political science, I mean, I think so much of what we do engages the world and human behavior. So we have to understand these things from multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. I think I think that the way you said that is really important because I think interdisciplinary work can actually make our disciplinary training more relevant. Like, what can you bring from your field? We were making a presentation at some point on the ASHE program, and somebody said, oh, you just missed this entire body of literature on systems-involved youth, which I didn't even know existed mm-hmm. around one of our areas of vulnerability. And so, boom, there it was, right? Like, that's helpful. And I, I could have been threatened in that situation, like, oh, man, I didn't figure that out by mm-hmm. myself. There's no way to figure that out by yourself, right? So it was 
those types of things where people introduce me to new ideas, that's the best part of our job. It's the yeah. only, not the only reason we're here, but it's the best part of our job, I think. And that's what the commons is really good. I find myself in those spaces with those people who want to have those conversations. That's the lifeblood of what we do. It really is. Um, one thing I wanted to circle back just yep. for one second, and you mentioned the sort of unique position that KU is in in terms of mm-hmm. having all these experts to be able to address the, the topic of human trafficking, but I also wonder about regionally or mm-hmm. geographically mm-hmm. how Kansas is in a unique position to be able to, Kansas and Missouri, because yeah. I know you're coming together, but noting that the governor's office had supported the conference in some ways, and as a topic that is connected to every human being in some way, right? Yeah. If this is also something bringing together government and research and... Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, because the moment we started really paying attention to this, thanks to the students, thanks to Laura, it was a moment of really sort of organization at the national level, at the federal level, and at the state level to start thinking about multidisciplinary <laughs> teams to address the issue of trafficking. So we are in a particularly good area because there are actually layers of intergovernmental, public-private cooperations that are happening. So there's a task force that's run out of the U.S. Attorney General's office for Kansas. There's a task force for Western Missouri. They collaborate across. There's a Kansas anti-trafficking unit. There's a Douglas County anti-trafficking unit that you know involves survivor leaders and law enforcement and judicial systems that get together and talk about issues. They've all been really nice to let me come as a researcher mm. and just say, hey, this is what we're doing going to teach classes and do some research. But really, it's been amazing to watch them collaborate in those ways. So that's been really exciting because I think this is a moment where everybody says, this is one of those problems we can't silo, right? Like you just can't silo it. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. The governor's office under Sam Brambach was very supportive of working on human trafficking because he was one of the co-authors, the co-sponsors, sorry, co-sponsors of the initial trafficking, the TVPA, what's now called the TVPA, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2000 with Paul Wellstone. So we had a fairly conservative senator, a fairly liberal senator coming together in a nonpartisan way. So I thought that was really good. Some things that are interesting might also be points of conversation that I would like to have going forward with policymakers is that now that we have a body of research that I think we can call upon, we've done, you know, a two-state survey, we've done, you know, a couple years of interviews, particularly with service providers and across the region, to say, if we're thinking about prevention, some of the things we really need to think about are putting more funding into education and putting more funding into affordable housing, putting more funding into the foster care system, putting more funding into social services, putting more funding into victim advocates, the wraparound services. And so I feel like we're at a position where you can politically be against trafficking and you're not going to find anybody in favor of it. But then if we want to get to the point where we can prevent it rather than just deal with survivors at the end, which we should also do and put more funding into, we really need to put the infrastructure back right? Yeah. that we've lost. And it's really painful to hear from service providers that their jobs have gotten harder, that some of the resources that they used to have have 
have gone away. And if everybody wants trafficking to stop, I would love it to stop before it starts. Where can these intervention points be? You know, how can we put more money into foster care? How can we work on legal paths to immigration so people aren't exploited? How can we start recognizing labor exploitation when it happens? So that's a policy conversation I'm excited to have. And I don't know even how to start that conversation. But that's what we're hearing in very clear terms, that we need more services for providers. We need more services for survivors. We don't have enough designated beds for people who are exiting trafficking. We don't have enough services for people who are exiting trafficking. None of that, right? So we seem to be on the right track with prosecution, but we don't seem to be on the right track with giving the funding and resources at a very institutional level for those important parts of the piece. Your research is connecting the dots in a very direct way in that case. like. I was wondering about that way you would communicate that research and those yeah. recommendations to policymakers, because you know academics often write books, journal articles. Right. Is there another form that you? Yeah, and this has been a this is a model that I used in Africa as well, which is I try to release really sometimes the very rough first draft of things, but and I think this is a term that we call it here in the U.S. too, a white paper, mm-hmm. sort of a first cut through things in very accessible language. And Corinne Schwartz, who was the lead GTA for Ashti wrote our first white paper based on the survey results and IPSR and Zan Weedle were very helpful in making that very user-friendly, very visibly accessible. So that was the first thing we published. We put that up on the webpage, it's free accessible, before we even started working on the publication. So academically, I'm at a place where I can make those types of choices because I'm tenured and I want to get that information out quickly and then I can work on the other publications to come later. But Corinne was all on board to, to engage in policy accessible language. I'd like to do more of that. We both have been called upon to do workshops and lectures to present our work. We're always happy to do that. We're not necessarily trainers in the same sense, and we do have excellent human trafficking trainers and organizations here in Kansas and survivor leaders here in Kansas who can do that type of training and should be supported to do that type of training. But we can report on our research findings very easily and accessibly. So we've prioritized that in those particular ways. And that's just the luxury of having tenure, I think, that I can think about public outputs before I say that and who knows what will happen with my career. (laughs) But I mean, I think that's been a priority. And it would be nice to have more time and space and resources to do that. And IPSR and the Department of Political Science have been just really, really supportive of that. Political science has provided research assistance and funding to support much of this research because otherwise, you know, at some point I continued to write grants and continued to write grants. And the chair of political science said, how about we just do the survey? Mm. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, let's just do the work. We're like, let's get it done. And then maybe that will lead to other grants that we can do. So, I have one question just sort of yeah. thinking about, as we're talking so much about human trafficking and yeah. the steps for prevention that you're able to identify at this point. I'm wondering about what are some of the larger misconceptions about it. I know on the center, for example, the center's page, you identify Mm -hmm. the idea of addressing contemporary and historical patterns of slavery. Mm -hmm. And I think using that word would have a certain set of direct connections and meaning. And I just wonder what other kinds of ways, if you put things into certain terms, Mm -hmm. people are more clearly understanding what human trafficking entails Mm -hmm. and how severe the the issues are. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And that's something that, you know, even I hope with the spring conference, we're going to be able to talk about a little bit because there is a a very healthy discussion about using the term slavery, Mm -hmm. especially by historians and scholars of slavery 
who might call that term into question, right? Mm. Because it in some ways could send sort of misconceptions about what those look like. At the same time, we are defining trafficking just right in line with the governmental policies, you know, the Kansas state policy, federal government, um, the, the UN. And this is really force fraud, labor or any type of labor or acts that are through force fraud and coercion. So these are people who in many ways are enslaved, but they're enslaved in plain sight, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. I think, you know, the media has not been helpful, right? Um, and by the media, I mean much of the entertainment industry, right? Uh, because the, the presentations of trafficking, while real, are by no means comprehensive. And so I have a sense that most people assume that people who are being trafficked are chained up somewhere, who are hidden from sight, when in fact they're working on our houses, they are serving our meals, they are in all range of activities, right? And they might be there through some form of coercion that we're unaware of, right? And so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Another is that it doesn't happen here. And we have already shown through our research, of course it happens here. And so let's do something about it. One of the pivots I would like to make, given how much the scholarship has focused on the horrors of sex trafficking, there is a great deal of scholarship on that. There's less on labor trafficking. And I think that comes from a particular place of what we want to see and what we don't want to see. And I think I'd like to spend more time with our students as well, sort of thinking about how does labor trafficking present itself in our area? What does labor trafficking look like? When does labor exploitation become labor trafficking? What are the range of factors we can do to prevent labor exploitation? I mean, we have labor laws in this country for a reason, right? People should not be exploited. So how can we think about those things differently? So I think that's a really important, I think, Emily, you've hit it right on the head. Like, this is a really important discussion because we are talking about people who may or may not have freedom of movement, but certainly their choices are deeply constrained because of discrimination, because of resource constraints, because of, you know, vulnerabilities. People are trafficked because they can't pay their mother's health bills. People are trafficked Mm -hmm. because they have a sick kid. Mm -hmm. People are trafficked because, you know, they've migrated and they don't have secure labor, right? Like the trafficking is occurring. So I don't know if that answers. No, that's, I mean, super educational for me too. But I'm also thinking about a lot of the local issues are starting to present themselves in this conversation too. But I'm also wondering that I know the center has some experts in other parts of the world, for example, Mm -hmm. like I think it spans local to transnational maybe was the language. Yeah. And what can be learned from the different parts mm-hmm. of the world that are represented by Yeah, and I think, you know, I've, yeah, you're right, because right now I've really been talking about sort of the work I've been doing and the students, but a lot of people are engaging these issues, and they're engaging different aspects of the issues. So Maria Almacheva has, have secured a significant three-year funding project to look at trafficking and looking at patterns of trafficking around terrorist networks as well. So, I mean, that's a really interesting aspect. Nasla Avdan in the office next door has also looked at visas and border crossing And so there are lots of us who are looking at different aspects of this in particular ways. And I think that's really, really important. You know, and I I think we could look also at people who are working with migration and labor exploitation. There's an excellent group in social welfare. They've received funding to work with migrant laborers. They're doing really good work on migrant labor in this area. So I think that would be another aspect to look at. So my hope uh, is to 
take what I've learned now that I have better foundation and understanding of trafficking and the literature and the scholarship and some years doing that research and start looking at this within the African context. Because I think there are some things that are similar and there are some things that are quite different. And discussions about sex trafficking and sex work are very different. And discussions about uh, labor exploitation are very, very different. So, And yet some things are very much the same, right? So looking at how patterns of global trade are creating massive inequalities and vulnerabilities that put people in a situation where they want to take riskier employment, in a situation where they want to, they end up in exploitation that they, in many ways, can't get out of, right? So I think that's where we're headed next, I think. So, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's really good that we have students doing all aspects of this. You know, and we have all these students out in the world doing great work who have graduated, right? So, and looking at their work's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Lardine continues to work in the Ukraine and Latvia and specifically looking at sex trafficking in those contexts. So I have this, this pride with what CREU has been able to nurture and, and send out. And I can imagine that the students are then qualified for all different fields of work, too, yeah. around even just around this topic specifically. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we have a lot. We have a good cohort of students right now. We have a student who's... So um, Marcy Quezon is looking at non-governmental organizations in the Philippines and how they work with trafficking survivors and the discourses that they use and the strategies that they use and how they're affected by international non-governmental organizations. We have a new graduate student, Pierre DeRoy, who is looking at all aspects, uh, in particular labor trafficking, but also how countries in the Caribbean and Latin America are constructed in particular ways by U.S. policies and U.S. the trafficking in persons report. So that's not very coherent, but she's branding. But I mean, it's just exciting to see, you know, that we actually are recruiting students in this area and they're going global, which is so nice to see. Um, well, I was going to ask you, knowing you know the weight and difficulty, the subject matter, and the fact that you're working with it, I'm sure more than only eight hours a day. What are your sort of ways of reviving yourself or continuing to push forward, knowing you know what you do know about the difficulties and challenges that we're facing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because the trafficking projects actually my side project okay <laughs> which seems kind of funny because it's the only thing that people know about really oh. my I just finished a book on gender-based violence in Africa so I've decided maybe the next project should be on something else but no mm-hmm. I'm just kidding but I, I realized like I take a break from the gender-based violence right. research in Africa and I pivot to human trafficking so I think you might be on to something that this is something I should well <laughs> Choice of study of injustice. It's not ever going to be pretty, right? No, I. I mean, I think there are particular coping mechanisms, and the question you ask is a question I deal with with my students and my research methods topics all the time because I think we don't spend enough time thinking about this. And I've actually spoken, done a couple lectures on thinking about researcher and participant safety and Mm -hmm. researcher safety also means sort of the mental health and as you're talking about sort of rebuilding of researchers themselves I mean we have an obligation if we engage in this research to finish it right and that's really hard because you can get into it and realize this is really hard even going through the transcripts but if people take their time to meet with us we want to go in that way Now, I'm not a social worker, and I'm not a scholar of social work, so I don't work with survivors in a research context. I work with service providers and political scientists with a background in public administration, so I'm really interested in the policy and 
that side. So it does give me a slight distance because I'm working with them. That said, many of the people who go into this work are survivors, right? And that's true for gender-based violence mm -hmm. advocacy as well as trafficking advocacy. So I'm always aware that the work I'm doing, even though that's focused on a sort of a prevention and policy and program, sort of coming up with solutions, I'm still working with survivors and I want to do everything I can to respect them and make sure that my work is trauma-informed as well. So that's something I think about with my students. But the great thing is now we're starting to have these resources. The World Health Organization has a great, I think they have two. They have one for doing research on human trafficking and one for doing research on gender-based violence. So those are resources I use with my students to think about you know, how to take breaks, how to work in teams so that you have people to bounce things off of, how to pace yourself. I always tell my students, you know, you need to get to those transcriptions immediately because you hear the data immediately. But I learned from a student in social welfare, April Rand, who came up with the idea she can't do all of her transcriptions on human trafficking at one time because she won't survive, right? None of us will survive. Mm -hmm. So like setting up a more reasonable transcription schedule, even things like that and focusing on what our research can do. I mean, otherwise there's no point, right? Otherwise this is not useful. And I mean, we're still really privileged, right? Because people who do this type of work or who are survivors live with this every day. Right. So I always tell students that self-care is important, but it's also a privilege that we have, that we have the ability to self-care and some of those people that we work with don't. So what can we do to connect people to resources? You know, our IRB here at KU, the Institutional Review Board at, our, at KU is really helpful in thinking about, okay, if there are risks to this research, how can you connect people to services? What are, what do you need to take with you? What can you have on hand? Now, in the terms of the live lab, which is super interesting, and I think I can mention this, I have a student who I think is working at the care center. That's not right. What is the organization on campus? Uh, is it CAPS? It's not CAPS. Oh, it might be CAPS. Yeah, sexual so, assault and prevent, prevention and education. Yeah, so I think, I, yeah, so I think it's uh, the student, Dustin Strubolt, works there, and we had this conversation about research and participant safety, and he does a lot on trauma-informed services and care. So he's going to run in our live lab a training session on how to do trauma-informed research, and that's something that we're going to experiment with because we've got the space to do it in the course. And hopefully this is a training module that he can develop and that we can use and he can move forward. So those types of things are really nice when students say, you know, why don't we think about it in this particular way? Like if we have resources on campus that are thinking about trauma-informed discussions, why can't we move them into research settings? Why don't we tap, you know, staff that we have here that are really well-trained? So that's kind of fun. That was a really long answer. No, it's, I think it's really useful to be able to be, I mean, within the community of the university, even just being able to appoint your students and yourselves, I mean, toward um, centers that we have that are full of specialists to be able to help with this. Right. And I'm only really, given the topics that I cover in class, to even think about just how traumatic these things are. And now when I do public lectures on this issue, even though I don't, I try very hard not to represent trauma in a particular way, even though I know some audiences are coming for that particular, you know, they those stories really resonate with them and, they, and they're inspiring in certain ways. I still know that even the topic itself is traumatizing. So, you know, even for events at the Commons that you and I have worked on, mm -hmm. we try to have resources mm -hmm. and support staff in the room because mm -hmm. you... 
never know. And with trafficking, people often don't recognize themselves as being trafficked. Even service providers we've talked to who say, well, I don't work with trafficking survivors. I work with exploited people. And then we talk to them about the definition. They say, oh, so actually, yes, I do work with trafficking survivors. So there's also this, because the, the narratives of trafficking are so narrow that you see in film and media, people don't realize the range of exploitation that's occurring. So I think you're right. Like we need to work with our campus partners and with our community partners. We always have folks Mm -hmm. from the community who are trained caregivers and trained counselors. And we're lucky in that respect. Other areas don't have those resources. So there are national hotlines and that's very helpful. And we direct people to those as well. I think you do such a wonderful job of being able to connect the, the research that you're doing, the things that you're finding, with the the actual resources and sites to be able to put the work on on the ground and apply it with audiences they're doing the real work right i mean they're the ones do it day in and day out teamwork right back to your topic yeah yeah Yeah. they're really good they're really i've learned a lot emily probably knows i'm going to ask this question about (laughs) films um (laughs) I'm, i'm always curious you know about how the research that people are doing is kind of represented in mm-hmm. you know, entertainment, mass entertainment sort of forms. Yeah. And if there's any particular film or, or TV show that you think is doing a good job or a bad job of representing some of the issues that you research. And it can definitely be a bad job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, so I don't, I'm not great, right? And my... <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> we can't leave that in there. No, 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 no. You can totally leave it in there. And I think, like, it's a little bit of a joke with my students. Like, I'm not on social media. I have a smartphone that's not connected to the internet. You know, so I'm not a great consumer of popular media. And I certainly don't want us to get sued by any major movie corporation. There are, however movies that do absolutely put a very particular face on human trafficking none of which i've actually watched there are certain films i just won't watch so and that's true for african films as well when there's like i just can't watch it the exploitation that's happening in those films now there are good films and i have to think about them and i will not i wish i had thought about this in advance but i mean i think if we were thinking about labor trafficking there's a lot of really interesting documentaries and films that are uh, you know, looking at issues of the border, that are looking at issues of migration, that if you really examined are also talking about trafficking, right? So yeah. I think working at that level could be really, really helpful. Well, it seems like everything you're finding is sort of informing mm-hmm. informing us as we go and up. therefore like the media that's causing all these misconceptions that we have it's partly just because it's like this research hasn't hasn't happened yet and you're doing it now and that's how we're learning that these things are incorrectly you know portrayed in the media right right yeah and I think the place that has been done well and has been done and done well it's really is is in migration so I mean I think there are some good examples from that I'm so embarrassed that I mean I am my students just I mean I think they're still laughing with me but I'm not totally sure (laughs) not totally it's refreshing how much you you admit they're teaching you along the way it's it's so cool to hear that yeah you know it's fun because now that I'm teaching so I don't like having a lot of technology in the large lecture classes mainly because you know the studies show that students actually do better when they're not on the computer and they're taking notes and so I want them to do well but in my smaller classes upper division classes I love it when students have laptops because they'll ask me a question Mm. 
say, okay, someone figure it out. And they find it. They find it fast, mm-hmm. right? And we'd, I used to say, okay, I'll have to go look that up and come back. And now we don't have to do that. Like the students are really, they're better consumers of knowledge. And after this class with KU Libraries, with Amalia, they're really good consumers of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like they know how to get their hands on everybody's campaign financing, that kind of thing. So that's really fun because now they just know things and they can get there. Mm-hmm. So it also makes teaching a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this idea that we know everything is, is a myth. It turns <laughs> out. Turns that's, out. A, that's passe a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and especially when we're covering, you know, continents, right. right? I mean, you know, I love people who study one institution, like one political institution. Right. Like, oh. As if that's only, not, you know, that's, that's not so complex, either, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just more fun this way, I think. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank you. And thanks for the work that you're doing. I mean, oh, you bring, thank you for the work that you're doing. No, you bring people together all the time. Whenever I see something happening at the Commons, I know it's an important conversation and it's going to be well, well represented and it's going to bring people together. So more of that, please. Unwinding is a collaboration between the Commons at KU and KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. The Commons is a catalyst for unconventional thinking, interdisciplinary inquiry, and unexpected discoveries across the sciences, arts, and humanities. The College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is the heart of KU. It's home to more than 50 departments, programs, and centers, offering more than 100 majors, minors, and certificates. A collaborative and creative community, the college is committed to making the world better through inquiry and research.